everybody. Good to see all of you today. Um, I've got a couple things I want to talk about before we get rolling. First, um, if you remember about a week ago, do you remember a week ago? I don't know. I sometimes uh, I don't. I don't remember what I did yesterday. But anyway, a week ago, um, uh, there was a hurricane that went through Florida and then, then kind of like gathered steam and then hit the Carolinas too. Um, I did get word this week from uh, the um, Church of God in Florida. <coughs> um, for the most part, most of the churches were okay, but there were a couple that were in the path and got damaged. Most, most notably was the Whitechapel Church in South Daytona. It's pastored by a good friend of mine named Michael Shambliss, and um, the, um, the facility did uh, receive some damage, although I don't think there were any injuries um, that I'm aware of, at least not yet. Um, but I did find out that one of his pastoral staff had like welcomed a new baby like a couple weeks ago and their house was, I, I, don't, I don't know how bad the damage is, but it was pretty bad, I guess. So um, stay tuned. If there's a way that we can be involved to help those churches out, we will uh, let you know. Um, as of right now, I think they're still trying to assess what they need and um, been in touch with them and, and just said, hey, we're here, you know, we're all part of the big family and uh, we care about what happens to you. So um, keep them in your prayers though. Um, they're gonna be cleaning that bad boy up for quite some time, clearly. So um, they deserve uh, our thoughts and our prayers and then our assistance if we can give it to them. Uh, secondly, the other thing I wanna mention is that uh, today, Sophia has started Kids Church with the elementary school kids, which I'm thrilled over. And uh, I thought we might take a moment and just pray for them. Can we do that? Is that all right with you? Good, because I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Jesus, uh, we want to say a special prayer today over the kids in Kids Church and um, the teachers and the staff and the people who are going to be involved in that ministry. Lord, that you would uh, bless them richly. Um, Bless them with your presence because we want the kids to know you. Ultimately, that's what we want. Not just, um, you know, entertaining songs or videos or Bible stories. We want them to know you. And so I pray that you would give that staff uh, wisdom and plenty of energy uh, to keep up with those kids and that the kids would be so receptive um, to your presence and that it would just stay with them the rest of the week too. Thank you that we can do this, that we get to do this, that we can follow you in this particular way and just ask for your continued blessing on that ministry. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, hey, thanks for that. I appreciate it a lot. Today I'm starting a new series on 2 Corinthians. Um, From time to time, um, God will kind of like point out certain things that he wants to talk about or certain books remember the first time it happened, I was up in um, Wisconsin, and I, um, was, it was very clear that he wanted us to study First John. It was really interesting because I'd never done a major study of that particular book, and um, that one stayed with me for quite some time. And uh, recently, I want to say it was about a month or so ago, I was in a pastor's meeting, and Second Corinthians kept coming up, um, different verses. And finally, I, I, I kept thinking to myself, well, maybe the Lord wants us to study this one. It was like, ding, 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 you know, and we have a winner. And I thought, okay, Lord, if this is what you want to do, um, I'm kind of excited because I've not done a study uh, of this particular book as well. You know, obviously certain verses come up from time to time, but, you know, in this particular case, 
I think that uh, God has something to say through this book to all of us. And uh, before we enter the text itself, I, I really feel like I need to do um, a bit of context. And that's what I want to do today. I want to talk about some general things, and hopefully there's a takeaway. But ultimately, um, as a teacher, I want you to have a backdrop for what we're going to read over the next uh, several weeks, okay? So I'm going to try to give you little history, little culture, little literature, you know, those context things that I that I think are really important. So hopefully this will help um, as we're reading through the, the letter. And, and that's what the, the first thing that you need to understand. This is a letter. This is a letter written by a man named Paul uh, to a church that he helped start. Okay? So Paul did some missionary journeys. He ended up in Corinth. If you're interested, in, it's in Acts chapter 18. I highly suggest that you read that. Uh, we will um, actually access that here in a few minutes. But um, Acts chapter 18 is where you find that part of the story. And so he begins this church, and it grows um, rather impressively, actually. And uh, he writes uh, a letter, um, this particular letter. Um, he actually writes several letters. I want to talk about that, too. So 2 Corinthians, we have First and Second Corinthians. But when you read inside the, the letters themselves, they reference other letters. And so um, it appears that there are several of these letters that went back and forth, but we only have, we only have the two. And that, so I thought it might be interesting for you to see um, kind of what the current state of the scholarship is on this, uh, just so that you have an understanding. So the first letter that was written to the Corinthian, Corinthians is lost to history. We have no idea uh, how long it is, all of the content, other than the fact that Paul makes reference to it in our book called 1 Corinthians. He talks about a previous letter, okay? So the first one is lost to history. The second letter is actually the book that we call 1 Corinthians, and it's a corrective letter. The Corinthian church has been a little naughty, okay? And so 1 Corinthians is kind of a chastisement, a correction to that church, all right? And um, you can see that through. Rich in theology and all kinds of teaching because part of correction is teaching. It's not enough to just tell somebody you're bad. You actually have to give them an alternative and that's what Paul does in this in, in 1 Corinthians. And as we go through 2 Corinthians, we will often access 1 Corinthians because obviously they're part of a, uh, a, um, an ongoing conversation between Paul and this church. The third letter is called the letter of tears. <coughs> And uh, apparently, the, um, the, 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 the corrective letter was not received well by the Corinthian church. Imagine that. And so Paul writes another letter, and it's called the Letter of Tears, and that too is lost to history. We don't, we don't know um, the content other than the various references that are made um, inside of 2 Corinthians. And that's the, the uh, fourth letter is what we call 2 Corinthians, but it's chapters 1 through 9. Now, there's quite a bit of discussion within the scholastic community that um, 2 Corinthians 10 through 13 is probably a different letter. And so somehow you've got a scribe who's writing this stuff down and he got some pages mixed up or something, not exactly sure, but it all got jammed together. But when you read 2 Corinthians 10 to the end of the letter, it's a very different letter. And some of the references are confusing because um, it doesn't necessarily make sense continuity-wise with, with chapters one through nine. Does this make sense? 
So as we kind of read through this, keep that in mind that there are probably five letters here. And so we only have two, maybe three, depending on which um, uh, scholar you're listening to. And I'm sure there's been lots of ink spilt on this one because, you know, you got to have to do something with your PhD work and discuss that kind of stuff. And anyway, so we're really looking at probably five letters. We have two, maybe three, depending on how you look at it. Does this make sense? Now, here's the thing. Um, wh- you know, why am, why am I telling you this, right? Knowing the fact that there's multiple letters, is that going to actually help you live more of a faithful Christian life? Well, the answer is no, probably not. It's probably not going to necessarily do that. But what I'm trying to show you is that <clears throat> there are people who take this stuff very seriously. And, you know, I can make cracks at PhDs all day long. It's a lot of fun to do. But the point is that we benefit when they do the work that God has called them to do, that we understand that there's an ongoing conversation between Paul and this church, and we're only seeing certain snapshots of it. And, and when, we, when we see references to other things within the text— we know that there's a bigger world. Remember, none of this stuff was written in a vacuum. That's the thing I want you to remember, is that whenever we read the text, when we open up the Bible, that wasn't just created, like I said, in a vacuum, that there are other things that are going on at the time. There is a history here. There is a rich relationship that's occurring, and we need to keep that in mind. For me, it helps the the text come... um, more alive as I'm kind of reading through it. And, and frankly, I don't want to miss anything because God is speaking through his word and I don't want to miss it. So if there are pieces of it that are missing, lost to history, I kind of want to know that. Does that make sense? So I want to understand that there's a lot more to it um, than, than just um, words on a page, that there are relationships and networks and history and those kinds of things that are involved. Now, If you were a large-scale merchant in the first century, you would often um, ship goods by ship, right? You would often transport them by ship. So let's say that you had some, like, dyes and maybe spices from Asia, which is what we would call Turkey, and you wanted to bring them to, um, to Rome, okay? Rome, big market, capital of the empire, that's where you're going to get the best price. And so that's a, that's a pretty long journey, especially for, for ancient people. I'm going to show you this map here. So on the, um, on the right-hand side, that's modern-day Turkey. And then uh, kind of where the arrow ends is more or less where Rome is, okay, on the Italian peninsula. And that's a long trek. And, and the, the best way, at least in those days, to move things was by ship. And so you would bring your dyes and spices that you had gotten in Asia or parts east um, to a port like Ephesus. And you would put your, your goods on a boat and you would sail them to Corinth. And let me explain to you why. I kind of kind of can see it here, but this is a little bit better. So this is the Greek peninsula right there. And you can see that little isthmus. That's the connecting bridge between those two large land land masses. And right in, kind of sort of in the middle of it, is the city of Corinth. Now, it is a lot better for your goods to go across a smaller uh, sea like the Aegean and then 
um, uh, take a short land journey through Corinth than it is to go all the way around the bottom part of that uh, Greek peninsula. Why? One word, weather. When you're in relatively shallow draft boats containing cargo, you really don't want to be messing with weather, okay? So you're going to try to take the safest route possible. And so what would happen is your, your goods would land on the eastern port, um, uh, on, the, on the east side of the peninsula. And then what, what would happen, they would be unloaded, put into carts, and then uh, a day, maybe four or five, because we're dealing with Teamsters here, <laughs> you have carts taking them overland to the western ports where they're put back on ships and then sailing, sailing on to Rome, hugging the coastline. Does this make sense? It really is rather ingenious because you have these ancient people who recognize that there was something in the geography here that made the journey safer. And if you're a merchant, one of the things you want to do is you want to mitigate risk, right? So consequently, you have this city called Corinth that is um, a major hub for these kinds of things. Now, it seems like a lot of work to do this, but if you're trying to mitigate risk, this makes the most sense. So that, because um, you're dealing with efficiency and you're dealing with cost effect effectiveness. So you've heard the, the old phrase, right? All roads lead to Rome, right? Well, that's true, um, but many of them pass through Corinth first, right? And especially if there's goods and services with them, they often went through Corinth. Major hub. Um, in, some, in some ways, Corinth was like the second or third most important city in the Roman Empire, aside from Rome, because that's the capital. But Corinth, because of the amount of trade that went through there um, over its lifetime, became an incredibly important part of the empire. And it's, it's important for us to understand that. Now, as you can probably imagine, with all that traffic, there are certain qualities that emerged. I want to talk about some of these, because this is quite interesting. You've got an area that, with, uh, because of the, the hub of trade routes, you have a lot of diversity. You've got a lot of people going in and out of there. And you've got a lot of people with a lot of different cultures that are going. It's a, it's a true melting pot in, in many, many respects. And so one of the things that emerged um, within the local city culture is there was an openness to new ideas. And why not? You've got people from all over the world who are coming in and their cultures are different than yours and so consequently, you have to be open. Why? Because we want to have trade. You know, there is that phrase that money makes the world go round. I'm not necessarily sure that's true, but it certainly greases the wheels. And so if you want to, for people to get along, add money to be a part of it. And so consequently, you've got this melting pot of not only cultures and races and ethnici uh, ethnicities, but you also have these ideas. This is a very cosmopolitan uh, culture, and new ideas are relatively accepted. And so it's really no wonder that Christianity kind of took off there. It was a new idea. And if you're going to find a people group that's receptive to new ideas, this one makes perfect sense right? So keep that in mind. You've got a culture that's open to new ideas. The second thing, and probably one of the more important ones, or more uh, uh, pivotal, is the fact that there's a lot of wealth in this, this town. 
because you have commerce and trade that produces wealth. And, and, and consequently, there's a lot of jobs for people as well. So when Paul arrives on the scene in Acts chapter 18, um, something uh, interesting shows up in the text. I want to show this to you. Uh, let's read this real quick. This is Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. After this, Paul left Athens, which was to the east, and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because uh, Caesar um, Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So obviously there's work. There's jobs for them to do because the three of them ended up going into business together. And if, the, if I read the text correctly, they were there somewhere between 18 months and two years. That's when they were together and doing this. Now, someday I'm going to do a character study on Priscilla and Aquila because they are a fascinating couple. They are the type of people that you want in your small group. Not only are they young and ambitious, they're also very bright and they can teach. So, consequently, you would want them in your small group. Um, but here's where he meets them. It's in Corinth, and why not? It's a diverse place. It's a melting pot. Surprise, surprise. But you can see that there's wealth, there's money to be made there, and so they're able to work together and, and have this business together. Now, the third thing <laughs> that you're going to find in any city like this, any type of hub, is you're going to find quite a bit of sin, Okay, and this is something that emerges, um, and we see it within 1 Corinthians quite a bit. So think of it this way. If you have a lot of sailors with time on their hands, guess what they're going to do, right? So you've got a large alcohol trade, and you have prostitution. That's a very common thing. Some of that prostitution was tied to certain types of worship, and others uh, were not. <clears throat> but because of the wealth, the reputation for elegant and expensive women began to circulate throughout the ancient, near, uh, the ancient Mediterranean world. In fact, um, there's, one, there's one of those beautiful ladies. The, the quote was, not every man can afford the trip to, to Corinth um, because companionship came at a price, apparently. <clears throat> And it reminds me a lot of the phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Yeah, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And it turns out that Corinth became kind of a base or a, a source for words that were coined to refer to various forms of sexual behavior. Let's just put it that way, politely. Um, and Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, if you're interested, you could look that up. Now, you, here you have, um, you know, these kind of factors that are going on. But, but there's some other ones that emerge too, largely because of wealth. And in particular, you're going to have social status. Um, who can afford and who can't afford. And this becomes a really big deal in the early church. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul actually addresses this. He says to, to them, this, remember, this is the corrective letter. This is the one that kind of caused a bit of a disturbance. 
He said, I hear that when you come together as a church, he's writing to the church leaders in Corinth, there are divisions among you. No doubt there have to be differences among you to, to show which of you have God's approval. Oh, okay. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So there are social status that happens in the culture that's playing inside of the church. And Paul's a little ticked off. You can kind of see the sarcasm, can't you? Kind of hear it in his voice. And so he's, he's chastising the church. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And you have allowed the culture to, more or less, infiltrate the church. It's supposed to go the other direction. Um, and I think this is also why Paul spends a lot of time talking about the body in 1 Corinthians. Here it is in uh, chapter 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So it doesn't matter what your social status is, you're still part of the body of Christ. And he's trying to make this point in a very, I, I think in a dramatic, um, 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 dramatic way, because he's trying to promote this idea of mutual interdependence. Because the fact of the matter is, is nobody gets all of the gifts. And so he spends time talking about the spiritual gifts and how the Holy Spirit decides who gets what. And that's why you can have somebody who has a gift of prophecy be a slave, and you have somebody who might be quite wealthy not have the same gift. The point is, is that Holy Spirit gets to decide who gets what and we're all in this together. Does this make sense? So Paul actually deals with this quite dramatically. And then finally, you've got this idea of wealth, and you have this idea of social status. Um, it more or less leads to what I, would, what I would call a culture of celebrity, or a celebrity culture. And Paul tackles this also in um, 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter itself. He makes this comment. I really like this. Uh, somebody has informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. And then he goes on. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So don't be picking teams based on celebrity. Paul has his people that he follows. Apollos happens to be an amazing teacher. Um, Peter is, is out and about as well. And, and what, what I think Paul is writing to this church is, look, there's only one celebrity, it's Jesus. Knock it off with all the rest. You don't need multiple celebrities in the church. There's just one. That's the one that you want to follow. And you want to make sure that you're listening to those individuals who are who are pointing you to him. Which, by the way, Paul, Cephas, Peter, and Apollos, all are pointing towards Christ. 
don't miss that. He's telling this, this church, he's like, you know, stop looking at one level down, look at the top. That's the celebrity if you're going to have one. So the only celebrity is actually Jesus. And it seems to me that when we kind of take all of this on the whole, when we look at you know, the, the big picture here, it sounds to me like <laughs> this Corinthian church is remarkably like a lot of modern churches today. And it's a lot like cities that we live in. And of course, we've got technology that makes that city seem a whole lot smaller. We've got an entire country, and we seem to really like wealth, and we definitely like sin. And, you know, there is social status, and there is celebrity, and we have all kinds of new ideas. Oh my gosh, do we have new ideas. I think I I actually wrote this down in my notes. I'm like, when I look at kind of the sinful stuff that goes on in our world today, I'm pretty sure it might have made a Corinthian sailor blush. That's saying something. Things have changed. Very new, strange ideas, but certainly celebrity is a big deal, especially in this culture. So I think that we have much to learn from Paul and his often wayward Corinthian flock. But there's a couple of takeaways here because I... I, it's fun to do the history. It's fun to do the culture. It's fun to understand that. But at the same time, I think every time we open up the word, we want to make sure that there's some kind of a takeaway. There's something that you know, we can look and say, God, what are you trying to teach me here? And, and I, I got a couple of thoughts on that. Um, you might have more. That's okay. Here's the couple of things that occurred to me. The first thing that just struck me about all of this is that <clears throat> despite all of the troubles Paul does not give up on this church. I mean, he's, he's willing to have this long conversation via letters, and he actually sends a number of, of his um, lieutenants to that particular church to try to help sort them out. He warns them, he even disciplines them, but he never, ever throws in the towel. And I believe in my heart that, that really comes from his trust in God. I really believe that. But I think that his trust in God actually comes from somewhere else. And this is the second thought that I had. That really, that's God's nature. God doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on people. We have an entire library of books that we call the Bible where we see God interacting with humanity over millennia and he never gives up on his people. The one time that he got so frustrated with them that he was going to wipe them out with water, he still saved Noah and his family, right? He never actually gives up on humanity. That's the nature of God himself. And the beautiful part of that is that we know that we are part of humanity. That means God is not giving up on you. And so when Jesus was with his disciples right before he left them, he said to them very plainly, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he wasn't just talking to them, he was talking to you sitting in that that seat right there. Those of you who are watching online, if you're sitting in your lazy boy, he's talking to you. God will not leave you nor forsake you. The nature of God doesn't give up on human beings. 
And, and I suppose, too, that that's a lesson for all of us in the sense that how, how about you and some of the relationships that you have? I'm probably going to step on some toes, but I want you to hear that I've got relationships like that, too, where I would really like to throw in the towel and say, nah, that's it, I'm all done. But I'm reminded that there's a God who continues to pursue me even when I do really dumb things. When I do things that are not from him. And so how is it that I can give up on those relationships myself? And that's not to make you feel bad or condemn you in any way. I'm not interested in that. I'm just wanting to highlight this. If I'm trying to follow Christ, don't I want to try to reflect his nature? That's not a condemning thought. That's a hopeful thought. That maybe there's a way that I can follow him and not give up. In fact, I'm going to state it um, fairly, in a fairly strong way. I think any time that you have some type of conflict with another person or group of people, that's an opportunity for you to trust God. I know that sounds weird. And I don't like it either, frankly. But if God has called you and has, he, he has assigned you to something, he's going to empower you to deal with that. And so if there is conflict, it is often an invitation because God whispers to us, can you trust me? Even in this? Well, sometimes we don't like to do that because we understand that we may have to change our behavior too and how much of us really like to do that. But if God's for us and God is for me to be the best person that I possibly can be, if God has come, hmm, God didn't come to make me better, he came to make me new. And if I'm going to be a new person, that means that I'm going to have to deal with things differently. So consequently, I think when we are in conflict, that's when God says, are you going to trust me? Yes, it's hard. But I think that's what makes it great. Because I can't do it on my own, neither can you, and that's when God does his part. And I think that's an encouraging thought. So I'm going to leave you with a challenge today. (laughs) It's an easy one, I think. I'm just going to invite you to simply read through the book of 2 Corinthians. Just read through it. Take a chapter or two, you know, every night. But just do it this week. How about you put your phone away when you go and get into bed? And you pull out your Bible. I know, I know, you got a Bible app. Yeah, 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 I got you, I got you. That's fine. But why not scroll through Scripture rather than Facebook for a change, okay? And as you do, remember, um, this is a real group of people. This isn't made up, this isn't fiction. This is a person who started a church And he sees his church beginning to go in a direction that's not Christ. And he's had this long conversation with real people, just like you and like me. 
And keep that in mind as you're reading it. Because you're reading history and you're reading rich theology and you're reading about a God who loves people and doesn't give up on them. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for um, these ancient stories that were written down for us. I'm so grateful that there were people who were um, unwilling to throw in the towel because you are unwilling to throw in the towel on all of us. And I pray that as we go through this entire series, that we would continue to get a sense of your nature about who you are and how much you actually love us. That that idea would so saturate our hearts and our minds that it would, it would change not just our behavior but our whole outlook on things. Sometimes when I pray prayers like that, I feel like, I feel like they're almost impossible but I know you're good and I know that nothing is impossible with you. You settled everything on the cross and for whatever reason, you choose to make each one of us a significant part of the work you're doing in the world. And I want to take that seriously and, and we want to do that as a church as well. So as we sing, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and do the things that only that your spirit can do and that you would speak to hearts. If they need the invitation to trust you, Lord, I pray that you would, you would give that. Lord, if they need some encouragement to stick with it, I pray that you would give that. If they need to be reminded of who they are, the fact that they're daughters and sons of a living God who loves them and will never leave them nor forsake them, God, I pray that that would be the message that they would hear. Ultimately, Lord, I trust you to speak in the way that only you can and that you would connect in ways that people need to hear you. Thank you in advance for what you're going to do, not just through us as a church body, but inside of us as individual disciples. And I can't wait to, to tell those stories. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.